Who would win in a verbal fight? Yeah. Kenneth or Regal. And this is no holds bar. So you don't have to take into consideration that like technically Regal's a king. So you can't speak plainly to him. Mm. I think Kenneth would win. Interesting. Why do you say Kenneth? He's more practiced at withholding his emotions. Ooh, good point. Good point. I don't know. I feel like Regal could win. Um, because while Kenneth has natural air of superiority, um, Regal was quite literally born into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So I think that like, I don't know. I think he could, he's a politician enough to be able to do it. Maybe it'd be moot. Maybe they become best friends. They'd realize how schemey or slimy each other are and like too shake similar. Hands. They would never trust each other. True. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we are back to discuss part two of chapter one of The Ship of Magic <laughs> of Priests and Pirates. Or is it of Pirates and Priests? It's Priests and Pirates. I'm almost positive. I should know. Of priests I, and Pirates. Okay. <laughs> I should know I only look at the books, you know. <laughs> they don't really have the chapter name, though, in the title like some do. That's so. true. That's true. All right, so we left off with Wintrow's perspective. He and Berendal were discussing things, and Berendal had told him that he has to go down to the ship, and Berendal was going to go with him to go back home. Berendal was just escorting him to the port. Right. And then it jumps back to Kenneth. Right, and as a reminder, in case you aren't listening to these in a succession, um, <laughs> The first part of last episode was all about Kenneth and how he got to Other Island and what he's there for. And now we're getting to af- near the end of the day after the collection along the beach has is kind of wrapping up. Yes. Yeah, they are still on the beach and walking towards the end where they know something will happen as Genghis, the crewmate that is on the beach with Kenneth, has kind of explained through his anecdotes of his uncle's friend. Yes. Long before Kenneth reached the end of the beach, he was aware of the other watching him. He had expected this, yet it intrigued him. For he had often heard they were creatures of the dawn and the dusk, seldom moving about while the sun was still high in the sky. A lesser man might have been afraid, but a lesser man would not have possessed Kenneth's luck or his skill with a sword. He continued his leisurely stroll down the beach, all the while gathering plunder. He feigned unawareness of the creature watching him, yet he was eerily certain that he it knew of his deceit. A game within a game, he told himself, and smiled secretly. Again, we start off very strong with the Kenneth section here, with that, as you mentioned before, feeling of superiority. He is supremely confident in himself and his luck and his skill that he can outmatch anything that the other has to show. 
Right. And we see again that whenever Kenneth is faced with something that isn't what he is expecting, he either explains it away as like, oh, it's okay that I didn't exactly know because it isn't that important or like it doesn't matter because luck will get me through it. Mm -hmm. So we have, I guess that is still his superiority shining through, but um, we get that really interesting look at his character and just who he kind of will be for this series. Yeah, and it peeks through even more as the next thing that happens is Genghis running down and telling him, hey, there's another watching us. Yes. And Kenneth was so happy and pleased with his game within a game that he's very upset that Genghis has to point it out and ruin everything. Yes, because now he can't pretend like he doesn't know anymore. He has to do something. So he tells Genghis to ignore it and finish searching the bank and asks if he had found anything else. A few things, Genghis admitted, not pleased. Kenneth straightened and waited. So Genghis digs out some things that he found along the upper bank, and he reluctantly draws out an object of brightly painted wood from his pocket. It was an arrangement of discs and rods with circular holes in some of the discs. Kenneth found it incomprehensible. A child's toy of some kind, he deemed it and waits more, and Genghis brings out the other thing that he found. A rosebud. Kenneth took it from him carefully, wary of the thorns. He had actually believed it real until the moment that he had held it and found the stem stiff and unyielding. He hefted it in his hand. It was as light as a real rose would be. He turned it, trying to decide what it, what it was made from. He concluded it was nothing he had ever seen before. Even more mysterious than its structure was its fragrance, as warm and spicy as if it were a full-blown rose from a summer garden. Kenneth raised one eyebrow at Genghis as he fastened the rose to his lapel of his jacket. The barbed thorns held it securely. Kenneth watched Genghis's lip fold tight, but the seaman dared no words. So two more things, the rose and the child's toy. Yes. I'm wondering if this is sort of like the spinning plates Possibly. I've never like heard them described. I've only ever seen someone using them on like TV or in media, uh, which is just like a pole with plates that spin on top. But I believe that they're not normal plates. They're actually like there's a trick to it in some way. I don't know. Obviously, yeah. I've never tried it, <laughs> but I wonder if this this would be like a beginner spinning plate toy or I, I don't training. Because it says that there were holes in some of the discs so i don't know if that's multiple holes right in the discs which would i think not be the spinning plate thing then right or I, i'm not sure yeah I don't without know more description it's kind of hard to tell yeah although uh, i'm wondering what robin hobb had in her mind yeah it would be really it. really interesting to get a picture of what she was thinking of or maybe she just wanted something that is vague and sounds otherworldly <laughs> Kenneth is looking around and eyeing up the time and knows that it'll take about an hour to walk to the other side of the island again and knows that time is getting short here before his ship is stranded so he has to get back to his ship before that happens to sail out of here without any damage. A rare moment of indecision clouded his thoughts. He had not come to the treasure beach for treasure alone, he had come in instead seeking the oracle of the other, confident that the other would choose to speak to him. He needed the confirmation of the oracle. 
Was not that why he had brought Genghis with him to witness? Genghis was one of the few men aboard his ship who did not routinely embroider his own adventures. He knew that his that not only his own crew members, but any pirate in Divi Town would accept Genghis's account as true. So we learn the true reason that Genghis is on the island with Kenneth. Right. He's, and that's because he doesn't lie. Yeah, and he's really well known as being trustworthy, but he's also kind of a gossip. So right. he will spread whatever news. He also makes a stipulation that if things go wrong and the Oracle doesn't tell Kenneth what he wants to hear... He will just uh, kill Genghis because Genghis isn't very hard to kill. Yeah. Um, which isn't really a surprise because we know that he killed the person <laughs> who gave him his good luck charm. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's really just more of <laughs> Kenneth being Kenneth, I guess. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, I suppose. <laughs> So he is contemplating the time that he has left, but decides to trust to his luck and stick with his plan to speak with the other and get his fortune read. He kind of goes into that belief a little bit more that it he has to trust to his luck. And it was a personal belief one he had discovered for himself and saw no reason to share with anyone else. You have to trust your luck for it to grow and for it to reward you. So you have to take those risks and believe that you'll get through it, and then that will help you. Yeah, Kenneth is really big on this whole manifesting thing. <laughs> yeah, he really is. He really manifests his own destiny. He's got his vision board up, you know. <laughs> he, like, secretly, quietly thinks the positive things to himself and then manifests it into reality. Love that for him. <laughs> <laughs> and again, he has his little game within a game, his contradictions that he lives by, which is another big parallel with Wintrow. Yes. With him saying, he smirked to himself as he concluded that would be the one chance he would not take. He would never trust to luck that his luck would not desert him. This convolution of logic pleased him. Yeah. they. I think Wintrow and Kenneth are very similar people, just two sides of the same coin. Um, Kenneth is a little bit more evil and willing to murder. And <laughs> Wintrow is just smug. <laughs> sheltered sheltered yeah so it is really fun whenever there are these little nuggets of like seeing each other in each other (laughs) i don't know a better way to phrase that but i really enjoy it i think to find similarities between these two because they are seemingly so different right i don't know well now we get to the end of the beach and there is a description of the other and i do want to take time to read a lot of this here because it kind of demonstrates what is happening as well. The smell of it was alluringly sweet, and then abruptly it became rancidly rotten when the wind changed and brought it stronger. The scent was so strong it became a taste in the back of his throat, one that almost gagged him. But it was not just the smell of the beast. Kenneth could feel its presence against his skin, His ears popped, and he felt his breathing as a pressure on his eyeballs and on the skin of his throat. He did not think he perspired, yet his face suddenly felt greasy with sweat, as if the wind had carried some substance from the other's skin and pasted it onto his. Kenneth fought distaste that bordered on nausea. He refused to let that weakness show. So we get a very disgusting description there. There's a lot of 
bad things <laughs> being right. described about the other, but it does start with alluringly sweet scent and then it shifts to all of that. So that's good to keep in mind as we continue forward. Can it kind of straightens himself up, draws himself and, you know, prepares himself, presents the best him to this, uh, to this other creature. Right. And he brags a little bit about how he's tall, but he's muscled proportionately and how he takes a lot of pleasure in knowing that men and women are both impressed by him. Um, and he always dresses really nice. He's just, he knows in his heart that he is a handsome man. I never really picture Kenneth's face when I'm reading these books and I don't know why, but like reading these descriptions is so weird. He has a mustache and a pointed beard. I don't yeah, know. It's just so it's, interesting. It's giving very much uh young, hot version of <laughs> um oh, what's the name? Captain Hook. Oh, I'm you like think so? <laughs> Yeah. I whenever this descript I read this description, all I could think of was Captain Hook if he was like younger and good looking, but also like more blue. <laughs> or blue instead of red. But maybe Kenneth isn't that good looking. He just thinks he is. I don't know. It seems like he could be. I just feel like I've never really seen a amazing looking person with a mustache and triangle goatee, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You also have never seen a pirate. That's true. <laughs> Besides Captain Hook. <laughs> hey, I've seen like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> the only thing that he does describe about himself that he does not like are his eyes. They were his mother's eyes, pale and watery and blue. When he encountered their stare in a looking glass, she looked out, out of them at him, distressed and teary at his dissolute ways. They seemed to him the vacuous eyes of an idiot out of place in his tanned face. It's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that from Kenneth. And I think as someone who is so full of himself and so sure um, to know that he has this little bit of conscious come through and it's his mother's voice. Um, it really makes me wonder about the kind of relationship he had growing up with her and like what was going on in their household that he would assume that having her eyes makes him look like an idiot. Well, the last time that he saw her, he was probably what, like eight or something. Yeah. Very, very young. And Paragon basically forged Kenneth and took all of his bad memories yeah. So a lot of that assumed like knowing what we know about Fitz giving his memories away, uh -huh. a lot of that was probably the good times too. Right. That's fair. That's fair. I don't know. He just uh he is a very damaged person and had a very very hard childhood. Right. No, it's definitely his childhood is very sad. But I do it does. It is really interesting to hear this, like, one, I guess, flaw that he sees in himself. Yeah. Um, it also does. It is interesting that his mother is the voice of reason. Right. Yeah. So he draws himself up to his full height, cuts his dashing finger, figure, and the other seems little impressed. 
The webbed fingers and toes, the obvious flexibility of the limbs, the flat fish eyes in their cartilaginous sockets, even the supple scaled skin that covered the creature were all as Kennet had expected. Its blunt, bald head was misshapen, neither that of a human nor a fish. The hinge of its jaws was under its ear holes, anchoring a mouth large enough to engulf a man's head. Its thin lips could not conceal the rows of tiny, sharp teeth. Its shoulders seemed to slump forward, but the posture suggested brute strength rather than slovenliness. And that's what I was talking about in the first episode, that I'm looking for all of the serpent features in that description, and I do seem to find a bunch. Fair, yeah. The jaws that are underneath the ears, you know, the tiny rows of sharp teeth can swallow a man whole. It talks about, you know, like the scaled skin, things like that. It talks about fish eyes and neither human nor fish and things like that. But that's because we as readers, first time through, don't know that that's where they come from is the serpents. Yeah, they are the what happens to serpents when the dragons that bird them get too close to humans. It's like the reverse curse of the rain wilds. <laughs> and Kenneth is remarking that all these descriptions that he has heard about are very accurate and he is pleased to hear and see that he has been well prepared. Right. He also mentions the outfit that the other is wearing, that it's wearing this weird kind of drapey looking like pantsuit sort of thing. And I thought this was really interesting because this is... Somewhat like a cloak. Yes. Um, This is kind of what's described, at least to my memory, um, what's described is found by the um, dragon keepers in Kelsingra whenever they look around and dig through all the homes. That's like the type of clothing they find. So... It wore a garment like a cloak of a pale azure, and the weave was so fine that it had no more texture than a flower petal. It draped the other in a way that suggested the fluidity of water. Yeah, that's that's basically exactly what is described in Dragon Creeper Keeper Chronicles, and it's definitely Elderling make, which further promotes the theory that there is a sunken elderly Elderling city. Off the coast. Right. Or even that these misformed other creatures have at one point had some sort of relation with elderlings. Yeah, possible. Although it is really hard to tell how long others live for. Um, We know dragons live for like ever. (laughs) They have very long lifespans. So... I mean, potentially the uh, the others could have been around since before the Elderlings fell. That's true. That's definitely true. And some of those stories that we were, that Kenneth had heard of about this island, about people coming to the island to get powers and things like that, could have come from those times. Yeah, definitely. So he goes into this whole description of what this other looks like. He goes into a whole description of what he is like. And he ends it with what he had not expected was the attraction he felt. Some trick of the wind had lied to his nose. This creature's scent was like a summer garden. 
the air of its breath the subtle bouquet of a rare wine. All wisdom resided in those unreadable eyes. He, longed, he suddenly longed to distinguish himself before it and be deemed worthy of its regard. He wanted to impress it with his goodness and intelligence. He longed for it to think well of him. He heard the slight crunch of Genghis's footfalls on the sand behind him. For an instant, the other's attention wavered. The flat eyes slid away from contemplating Kennet, and in that moment, the glamour was broken. Kennet almost startled. Then he crossed his arms on his chest so that the wizardwood face pressed into his flesh securely. Quickened or not, it had seemed to work, holding off the creature's enchantment. Now that he was aware of the other's intent, he could hold his will firm against such manipulation. So, the other, still being kin to dragons, do have that glamour and can enchant others and enamor them, specifically humans. Right. And this is very similar to what we have seen skill do in the past. Yep. So we know there's some sort of relationship there with the magics. Um, and it's really interesting that Kenneth assumes he has no idea that now that he knows what the other was doing, he'll be safe. Like he can, it seems to be somewhat true at least. Definitely. But I just think it's another case of him just like believing his, in himself so strongly that he's right. like, yeah, of course this is my theory and it can't be wrong. Yeah, Definitely. <laughs> And so the other speaks and welcomes him. The other asks, will you make a goodwill offering and hear the oracle speak the significance of your fines? So Kenneth is contemplating the effort that it probably took the other to learn human words. But at the same time is dismissing it because he has to act superior and it, it it's really weird to be in his mind and like think these interesting contradictory thoughts because he basically says a part of him admired the effort to learn that and then the other part of it dismissed him because it was you know a creature foreign in every way to his hum- humanity and he stood before it on its own territory and yet it waited upon him speaking in his tongue begging alms in exchange for its prophecies. Yet if it recognized him as superior, why was there sarcasm in his voice? So it's like that weird duality of, yeah, I applaud this thing, but Kenneth's need to dismiss everything and kind of explain it away in his own mind is like, okay, but it's still servile to me because I'm, you know, so cool. (laughs) Right. Well, I almost think that Kenneth has a habit of, looking for the worst in everything. I feel like in this moment, he could just accept that there is some type of like goodwill happening on the other's part and that the other like in some way does find humans or like people as superior to his own kind. But instead of like keeping with that and keeping positivity, he immediately has to shut down those thoughts and explain why everything is worse than you think it is. And I think that is kind of like based off of the trauma that he has had to go through that like, he can't just trust goodwill. He can't just see the good in things. He has to have a reason why things are actually tricky. And like, of course he can be mean to this person because really deep down he was being sarcastic anyway. So Yeah, I just, I feel really bad for Kenneth because it's like a really tiring viewpoint to have to look at the world that way. Yeah, and that, I mean, that mentality will definitely shift from us over the books. 
But to begin with and know where he comes from is an important thing to feel sorry for him now. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really important to remember the humanity of even villains because, well, first of all, these are fictional fictitious books so especially villains actually but yeah yeah but i mean (laughs) i want to say preface it with these are fictitious books so none of these events have actually happened but also it's still really important i think an important shred of humanity itself is to be able to empathize with all types of people not just people that you recognize as someone being like you and to know that like sometimes people are just making decisions based on their trauma or based off of the best that they can give. And so like being able to say, yeah, this person is horrible. He like murders people just because, and like still be able to find some part of humanity and to feel sorry for him is like a good thing to look for. And I always try to push myself to do that, especially when we read these books, because it's really easy to just say like, this is a horrible person and they deserve the worst. And it's a little bit harder to dig a little bit deeper and say, well, maybe they're making these choices because of this. And one of my favorite things that Luke has ever said, and I'm sure he got it from somewhere else, but um, we like to talk about how um, whenever we find empathetic things about people that we don't agree with, it's something that explains it, but doesn't excuse it. And I really like having that motto (laughs) in our lives just knowing that like there is a reason and it can be really sad, but also that doesn't excuse that he's murdering people or what he does later in the books. It just is good to know where he's coming from. Right. Yeah. And so Kenneth offers the two gold that is customary. The other takes it in his mouth. The other smooths out some sand and waits for Kenneth to lay what he found on the beach before the other. He takes his time, but he sets first the glass ball with the tumblers within it. Then he places the rose down. He puts the 12 fingernails around that. At the end of the arc, he places the small chest with the tiny cups in it. A handful of small crystal spheres he nested in a hollow. He had gathered them on the final stretch of the beach. Beside them, he set his final find, a copper feather that seemed to weigh little more than a real one. He gave a nod that he was finished and stepped back slightly. With an apologetic glance at his captain, Genkis shyly placed the painted wooden toy to one side of the ark. Then he, too, stood back. The other looked for a time at the fan of treasures before it, then it lifted its oddly flat eyes to meet Kenneth's blue stare. It finally spoke. This is all you found? The emphasis was unmistakable. Kenneth just kind of shrugs, but uh, we know that he still has the locket in his pockets. And I believe the ruby earring from the cats. Yes, he had found the bag of dead mutant kittens and he took one of the ruby earrings from its ear and placed it in a different pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that locket of the woman that he found, the first thing that he found. Yes. So we know that he is keeping a secret. It seems the other also knows And Kenneth is not willing to admit it, so he just shrugs. And the other says, That which the ocean washes up here is not for the keeping of men. The water brings it here because here is where the water wishes it to be. 
Do not set yourself against the will of the water, for no wise creature does that. No human is permitted to keep what he finds upon the treasure beach. Does it belong to the other, then? Kenneth asked calmly. Despite the differences in species, it was still easy for Kenneth to see he had disconcerted the other. It took a moment to recover, then answered gravely. What the ocean washes up upon the treasure beach belongs always to the ocean. We are but caretakers here. Well then, you need have no concern. I'm Captain Kennet, and I'm not the only one who will tell you that all the ocean is mine to rove. So all that belongs to the ocean is mine as well. You've had your gold, now speak your prophecy, and take no more care for that which does not belong to you. Genghis gasps audibly beside him and the other gives no sign of reacting. So this is really interesting because it's really hard to tell if this is a genuine held belief of the others that these items belong to the ocean and you're not really supposed to take it or... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> or if it's just a, fa- a facade that they're putting on for Kenneth. Um, I think they're combined with the greed of humans. Yeah. With the arrogance of dragons, they're like, all oh, this stuff is ours. <laughs> <laughs> That's their horde. I think it's really interesting because they don't have to do the work of finding it. And it makes me wonder when people aren't on their island, if they do come through the beaches, they all come out and have little parties and like, look what I found. <laughs> they might not like what they find, though. That's fair, especially if they did have relationship with the others. Maybe this is their weird way of like... The elderlings, yeah. Or the elderly, yeah, the others had... If they, like, are part of the downfall, which we know that at some point they begin working with the Whites, unclear when that started. But maybe they feel a little bit of guilt to their (laughs) half-siblings. Maybe. And so this is the only way they can think of to, like, pay homage to them. A little shrine. Yeah. Well, once again, Kenneth's arrogance peeks through his need to be the master of everything because... He says that the other gave no sign of reacting to those words. Instead, it bowed its head gravely, inclining its necklace body toward him, almost as, almost as if compelled to acknowledge Kenneth as its master. Right. And we are again reminded that this is a not very reliable narrator. He lifts his head and its fish eyes found Kenneth's soul as unerringly as a finger on a chart. When it spoke, there was a deeper note to its voice, as if the words were blown up from deep inside it. So plain this telling that even one of your spawn could read it. You take that which is not yours, Captain Kennet, and claim it as your own. No matter how much falls into your hands, you are never sated. Those that follow you must be content with what you have cast off as gewgaws and toys while you take what you perceive as most valuable and keep it for yourself. The creature's eyes darted briefly to Locke with Genkis's goggling stare. In his evaluations, you are both deceived and both made the poorer. Kenneth did not care at all for the direction of this soothsaying. My gold has bought me the right to ask one question, has it not? He demanded boldly. The other's jaw dropped open wide, not in astonishment, but perhaps as a sort of threat. The rows of teeth were indeed impressive, then it snapped shut. Quickly, I want to mention there, too, that is a serpent habit as well. They do spew poison from their sacks when threatened, 
and as threats. So just kind of am pointing out more similarities. <laughs> yeah. And they also have rows of teeth that go down yes. their mouths. Mm-hmm. Shall I succeed in what I aspire? The other's air sacs pulsed speculatively. You do not wish to make your question more specific. Do the omens need me to be more specific? Kenneth asked with tolerance. The other glanced down at the array of objects again. The rose, the cups, the nails, the tumblers inside the ball, the feather, the crystal spheres. You will succeed in your heart's desire, it said succinctly. A smile began to dawn on Kenneth's face, but faded as the creature continued, his tone growing more ominous. That which you are most driven to do, you will accomplish. That task, that feat, that deed which haunts your dreams will blossom in your hands. Enough, Kenneth growled, suddenly hasty. He abandoned any thought of asking for an audience with their goddess. This was as far as he wished to press their soothsaying. He stooped to retrieve the prizes on the sand, but the creature suddenly fanned out its long-fingered webbed hands and spread them protectively above the treasures. A drop of venom welled greenly to the tip of each digit. The treasures, of course, will remain on the treasure beach. I will see to their placement. Why, thank you, Kenneth said, his voice melodic with sincerity. He straightened slowly, but as the creature relaxed its guard, he suddenly stepped forward, planting his foot firmly on the glass ball with the tumblers inside. It gave way with a tinkle like wind chimes. Genghis cried out as if Kenneth had slain his firstborn, and even the other recoiled at the wanton destructiveness. A pity, Kenneth observed as he turned away, but if I cannot possess it, why should anyone? And we get more of Kenneth. Yeah, he is destroying something he cannot have, simply because if he can't, no one else can, mm-hmm. which is a reoccurring theme. Yes. And the other, of course, is very angry at this and it takes a long breath and then in tones kind of hinted at this is more soothsaying. The heel that destroys that which belongs to the sea shall be claimed in turn by the sea. It's really interesting because we as rereaders know this is really what happens he is claimed by a serpent right i believe he is eaten by one uh so that is like kind of a big deal (laughs) but also i think it's really interesting that this soothsayer or the other actually kind of is an oracle is someone who can tell the future and maybe it's just because it's so vague that it's like one of those like it could fit in any situation. Also, like their, you know, their goddess or whatever does grant them some properties, right? Well, I don't know if she grants them anything because she's a trapped serpent. But, and I don't even know if she can, like, actually see the future. She just has memories of the past. Right. That's that's fair. So, I don't really know. It's really hard to tell. I mean, we know the whites have uh, prophetic abilities, but how intertwined is that with the others and what they can do with their branch of magic? Like, yeah, all these prophecies seem to come true. So, yeah, he's a head scratcher, though. (laughs) Kenneth turns away. Gank is following him, and before he heads off too far, he turns back. 
and says, Oh yes, there was one other omen that perhaps you might wish to consider, but methinks the ocean washed it to you, not me, and thus I left it where it was. It is well known, I believe, that the others have no love for cats. Actually, their fear and awe of anything feline was almost as legendary as their ability to soothsay. The other did not deign to reply, but Kenneth had the satisfaction of seeing its air sacs puff with alarm. You'll find them up the beach, a whole litter of kits for you, with very pretty blue coats. They were in a leather bag. Seven or eight of the pretty little creatures. Most of them looked a bit poorly after their dip in the ocean, but no doubt those I let out will fare well. Do remember they belong, not to you, but the ocean. I'm sure you'll treat them kindly. The other made a peculiar noise, almost like, almost a whistle. Take them, it begged. Take them away, all of them, please. Take away from the treasure beach that which the ocean saw fit to bring here. I would not dream of it, Kenneth assured him with vast sincerity. He did not laugh, nor even smile as he turned away from its evident distress. He did find himself humming the tune to a rather bawdy song, currently popular in Divi Town. The length of his stride was such that Genkis was soon puffing again as he trotted along beside him. So that is Kenneth's last dig at the other to get back at him. It's also um, another sh- sign of his luck. Um, if yeah. you remember when he found the dead cats in the bag, he had a feeling that he shouldn't bring them with and he left them where they were. So this was a thing where he like was overwhelmed with a feeling and just left it, went with it because he trusted his gut. And it paid off because he was able to get a dig in. And it's just really interesting how his little feelings actually work out. And it scares the others, of course. But they continue striding away. Kenneth and Genkis. Genkis is, you know, rushing to try to keep up with Kenneth's swift stride. And they're making their way back towards that forest, the path, and to the other side of the island. Genkis soon asks Kenneth if he can ask a question. Kenneth graciously says, you may ask it. He half expected the man to ask him to slow down, that he would refuse. They must make all haste back to the ship if they were to work her out of out to sea before the rocks emerged from the retreating tide. So once again, there is that note that time is of the essence and things must happen quickly. They must get back quickly. Right. There's no reason to tarry. Yes. So Genkis asks, what is it that you'll succeed in doing? And Kenneth is almost tempted to answer, but he resists because he schemed this very, very carefully and staged it very, very carefully. And he wants to play it out as he has planned. So he wants Genkis to spread what has happened on the island before he even mentions what he's going to attempt next so there is belief in him amongst the crew so they won't you know mutiny or anything like that right and we as rereaders know that this thing that he is trying to do is become king of the pirates yes and that that's he wants to make the pirate isles into an actual sanctuary and like place on the map not just a place where pirates go to be pirates. This will become an actual town where he can be king or kingdom, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he can be king of. So his plans are big and he has been working on these for a long time. 
And as much as he began this chapter saying that magic isn't real and that like everything can be explained away, he is kind of satisfied with this magical oracle telling that he will succeed in his plans. Like he believes yeah. that that must be true then. Must be true. Plus it also plays into the plan of Genghis spreading that it is true because Genghis believes. So it works doubly for him. So they are traveling much faster than they did before, trying to get to the other side of the island. And Kenneth once again does say he's not going to take any chances with the Marietta, his ship. They would be well away from this sorceress place before the tide could strand her. And we get a description now of heading into the forest on that gravel, dark gravel road that we assume is a skill road or has some sort of properties in that direction. I would like to say a back road country version (laughs) of the skill road. Kenneth felt his stride slowing as the piece of the golden place seeped into him. Get some more description, and then it says, Now he knew with unflagging certainty that the forest was a place of marvels. It had treasures and secrets every bit as tantalizing as those that Treasure Beach had offered. His urgency to reach the Marietta peeled away from him and was discarded. He found himself standing still in the middle of the pebbled pathway. Today he would explore the island. It is really interesting because on his way to the beach, he had mentioned specifically how scary the forest seemed and how unwelcoming and how he just wanted to get to the beach. So this stark difference of like, oh, what a beautiful, lovely place. I should I should wander the island is very stark. Mm -hmm. And it says nothing intruded on his pleasure of just standing and taking in everything save Genghis. The man persisted in chattering warnings about the tide and the Marietta. The more Kennet ignored him, the more he pelted him with questions. Why have we stopped here, Captain Kennet? Sir, are you feeling well, sir? He waved a dismissive hand at the man, but the old tar paid it no attention. He cast about for some errand that he would take the noisy, smelly man from his presence. As he groped in his pockets, his hand encountered the locket and chain. He smiled slyly to himself as he drew it out. He interrupted whatever it was Genghis was blithering about. Ah, this will never do. See that? See what I've accidentally carried off from their beach? Be a good lad now and run this back to the beach for me. Give it to the other and see it puts, puts it away safely. Genghis is, of course, you know, gaping at him and like, we have no time. Plus, like, he's probably curious, like, you already took it off and said you were taking stuff. <laughs> yeah, and there's not going to be another time for the the tide for another month so and nobody's ever made it a night here so like we need to leave now it's now or never so he he tells gankus he yells at him go i told you go and the old sea dog snatches the chain and the locket runs off out of sight kenneth grins widely to himself and he hastens up the path to the island's hilly interior He'd put some distance between himself and where he'd left Genghis, and then he'd leave the trail. Genghis would never find him. He'd be forced to leave without him, and then all the wonders of the other island, other's island would be his. Not quite. You would be theirs. It was his own voice speaking in a tiny whisper so soft that even Kenneth's keen ears barely heard it. He moistened his lips and looked about himself. The words had shivered through him like a sudden awakening. 
you'd been about to do something. What? You were about to put yourself into their hands. Power flows both ways on this path. The magic encourages you to stay upon it, but it cannot be worked to appeal to a human without also working to repel the other. The magic that keeps their world safe from you also protects you as long as you do not stray from the path. If they persuade you to leave the path, you'll be well within their reach. Not a wise move. So he has a conversation with his wizardwood charm. Yes, he realizes that the charm has awakened. And, and it's taken on colors. Yes, it looks just like him. And it is helping. It stopped the spell from working. Which mm-hmm. is kind of wild because this is like a weird use of wizard wood and it worked for what the guy who made it told him it would do. It kept him safe mm-hmm. from enchantments. The face gave a snort of disdain. If I am a bad bargain to you, you are as much a one to me. I was beginning to think myself strapped to the wrist of a gullible fool, doomed to almost immediate destruction, but you seem to have shaken the effect of the spell. Or rather, I have cloven it from you. What spell, Kenneth demanded. The charm's lip curled in a disdainful smile. The reverse of the one you felt on the way here. All succumbed to it that tread this path. The magic of the other is so strong that one cannot pass through their lands without feeling it and being drawn toward it. So they settle upon this path a spell of procrastination. One knows that their lands beckon, but one puts off visiting them until tomorrow. Always tomorrow, and hence never. But your little threat about the kittens has unsettled them a bit. You, they would lure from the path and use as a tool to be rid of the cats. And Kenneth, of course, is very pleased with himself. They did not foresee that I had made you as the charm to break the spells and everything like that. And the charm basically says, I'm not really repelling their magic at all. But you being aware of what they're doing is the most powerful, you know, the most powerful thing against that spell. Right. Which means that Kenneth's instincts were correct, that as long as he knows he's protected. Yeah. It is really interesting, though, because in this explanation, we're given that the magic of the land makes you want to wait, even if you haven't pissed off the <laughs> uh, the others. But Genghis wasn't really affected by that. No, it seems to be directed upon towards one person. Right. So he is fine. Which is really interesting, I think. And thanks to Genghis, you know, um, he's going to be okay. But yeah, he decides to move on. I think it's really interesting, too, that his wizard wood face (laughs) charm knows so much about how the magic works here and knows what to do. I know that wizard wood as a whole usually absorbs the life force of some in some way from the people that it comes in contact with. Yeah. Um, that's how it wakens. But I'm, I don't know. It just really draws the question of you know, how it works. <laughs> that's always yeah. what I'm wondering, I guess. Yeah. But the wizard word charm encourages, you know, and reminds Kenneth that time is of the essence Kenneth kind of is regretting sending Genghis off, but he makes a run for the ship anyways because they have to leave. And 
He is running, and instant later he hears the drumming of Genghis's feet on the path behind him, and was shocked when the sailor passed him without hesitation. And this is Genghis before, who is having trouble keeping up with Kenneth's long strides. So Kenneth was thinking he couldn't run any faster, but suddenly put on a burst of speed that carried him out of the sheltering trees and onto the beach. He heard Genghis crying out to the ship's boys to wait, wait, and the lad had evidently decided to give up on his captain's return, for he had pushed and dragged the gig out over the sea, seaweed and barnacle-coated rocks to the retreating edge of the water. Cry went up from the anchored ship at the sight of Kenneth and Genghis emerging from the beach, and everyone was kind of waving at them to frantically hurry because the tide is going out. The Marietta is close to being in danger of being beached and hitting these rocks as the retreating tide is, you know, basically raising these rocks to view and pushing it into the bottom of the Marietta. Right. So they are running and Genghis is still ahead of him. No orders were necessary as all three seized the gunwheels of the gig, ran her out to the retreating waves. They were soaked, but they got in. They started rowing out. Marietta's anchor was rising, but the mate was at the wheel, and the instant he saw his captain safely aboard, Sorkor, our wonderful first mate here, yes, is introduced. He's uh, Bellows' orders to take her out to sea. So, wind is filling the sails. They get out just in time. A glance about the deck showed Kenneth that all was in order. The ship's boy cowered when the captain's eyes swept over him. Kenneth merely looked at him, and the boy knew his disobedience would not be forgotten nor overlooked. A pity. The boy had had a sweet, smooth back. Tomorrow, that would no longer be so. Tomorrow would be soon enough to deal with him. Let him look forward to it for a time and savor the stripes his cowardice had, had bought him. With no more than a nod to the mate, Kenneth sought his own quarters. Despite the near mishap, his heart thundered with triumph. He had bested the others at their own game. His luck had held, as it always had. The costly charm on his wrist had quickened and proved its value. And best of all, he had the oracle of the others themselves to give the cloak of prophecy to his ambitions. He would be the first king of the Pirate Isles. And we finish chapter one. Yeah, so Kenneth got what he wanted. He is down one goody from other isle yeah but he still has the other that he has forgotten about momentarily um we also learn that kenneth the only thing kenneth values above himself is his ship and that he actually cares a lot about this ship and maintaining it and making sure that it is okay um and without the ship he's nothing yeah it's really interesting to know about him and even more interesting when you think about how just moments before he was about to leave it. Right. And yeah. not ever return. <laughs> Strong magic. Yeah. We get an introduction to Wintro, to Kennet, to Sorcor briefly. Genghis doesn't really matter that much. Eh, he comes up now and again. Now and again, yeah. He's an he's a he's like a tertiary character, maybe. He, he pushes the plot forward, I think. He usually is a really good, like Oh my gosh, can you believe Kenneth's so amazing? Which Sorkor is too, but I feel like the difference between Genghis and Sorkor is that Genghis 100% believes in his captain and it's believes... A bit dumber. Yeah, he <laughs> believes that, like, Kenneth truly knows everything. And I feel like Sorkor 
doesn't. He has that, but he gets disillusioned with the freeing of the slaves later on a little bit. Yes. I think, I think Sorcor definitely has the whole, like, I don't know, a healthy amount of disbelief. And he would never show that to Kenneth. And I don't even know if Kenneth himself realizes, but I think for sure Sorcor is just, like you said, a little smarter. <laughs> just a little bit. And so, a lot yeah. A of them he, are pretty dumb. <laughs> that's, that's true. But you know what? Maybe you should you should reread this and tell me what you think at the end. There you go. <laughs> As Bernandal yeah. would say. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any thoughts or questions or any theories of your own, please let us know at isfitshappy at gmail.com. Or you can message us or comment at on any of our posts at isfitshappy at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Okay, now we get to my favorite part of the episode, where we are going to talk a little bit about some of the things you guys have sent in to us. Um, But first and foremost, I want to apologize. Um, You've probably noticed I sound a little stuffy. Um, It probably changes in varying forms throughout the pod as the podcast went this episode. Um, It turns out that I'm allergic to the bedding that we have, so I've been struggling with uh, allergies. We just bought new stuff because we moved to a new country and yeah, I have to be a little bit more careful, I guess, when picking out sheets or quilts. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just apologies on that. I'm not sick. Everything is good. Just allergic to everything. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of things that you guys brought up, there are quite a few comments, most of them encouraging and excited to get into live ship traders. So thank you for those. It's always nice to read and to hear about. And then a lot agreeing with Emma about how the serpents are the worst or they're just like uncomfortable to read. Yes, I am so (laughs) glad I'm not the only one. I think because I've only ever really talked to Luke about these books and he doesn't hate the serpents. I've always been like, oh, maybe this is a hot take, but (laughs) I'm glad to have so much support on my opinion. So thank you. <laughs> True. And there is a an email actually about the serpents that we got from Bastion. So thank you. We had a conversation previously about, you know, which serpents appear later as dragons and grow up, things like that, that we see repeated. And there, uh, Bastion uh, emailed us to let us know that only two of them are actually confirmed. One is Malkin, who becomes Murkor, as I knew before. And then uh, Kalaro is a serpent that we meet later on, and he becomes Kalo, the dragon. Uh, the other ones, there are like Shriver and Hebe. It's kind of theorized, but it's never you know proven or anything like that. Some of the other serpents, uh, we get confirmation that they die before they get cocooned or while they're cocooned. And then there's also... Um, Caesarea, who becomes the wizard wood for Tarman, the raft. Yes. That is Leftrin's raft. Yeah. So it is definitely um, something to keep an eye out for in, in the very distant future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also a good thing to think about as we get to know the serpents so that we know like kind of who they are as characters and what their personalities are like. So it makes it a little bit easier whenever we get to the next trilogy about them as dragons to see if we can 
figure anything out. <laughs> so before we go into some of the other comments about other like older things, I do want to bring up a comment that we had from Alan on last episode, just talking about Kenneth and Kenneth's character and the hypervigilance that we brought up before. Ellen notes down here that Hobb really portrays traumas extremely well, and it's not like a textbook. It's not in your face. It's just a part of who they are, and it explains it through their actions, and that sounds pretty close to severe childhood trauma, which we know Kenneth has gone through. So just, again, kind of going over how Hobb has wonderfully gone through this. And yes, it is painful to read (laughs) often, but it is a a very, very well done character. Right. Definitely there had to have been some level of research going into the effects of childhood trauma, I would assume, um, when making this character. And if not, she really used that Kenneth luck (laughs) (laughs) to get it right. True. Um, But no, it's part of the reason we, I think all of us, you listeners included enjoy listening and reading this book series so much. Yeah. It's just really cool. Um, Also, we need to clear up some older things. Yes. (laughs) Um, A question that I didn't realize we had (laughs) that is from a month ago. Now I made the comment that the person I'm most looking forward to getting away from from the last series is the barrel guy i know that he's a very niche character but i kind of forget sometimes <laughs> just had him fixed in your head as this I, big bad i think about him a lot actually which is weird because he is in like chapter three or four for maybe a paragraph um, yes, but and just this is this is chapter three or four of assassin's apprentice one. yeah this is when fitz is a young kid the first time he and nosy are out on the streets no they're not on the street they are in the castle and they're they're on the way to the kitchen i think they're still in the streets they're in the castle though like they? they're okay. not like in town well yeah they're they're in Buckkeep, but they're in the streets of Buckkeep. that doesn't Buckkeep is the name of the town right there's Buckkeep town and there's Buckkeep like the, the castle. castle okay yes. yeah yeah then i guess i don't know because he's like waiting for the stable hand to bring him food yeah, outside of the outside of the kitchen door the mess hall or whatever yeah so I, I i imagine it as like an outer wall with a bunch of different buildings sure and he's outside oh in that so i i guess quote he's unquote the street yeah. well, anyways it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter it like truly doesn't <laughs> anyway setting the scene here <laughs> he's the guy who like I don't even remember what he says to Fitz, to be honest. He, like, I just know that confronts he, him and like stands in front of him like, hey, answer me. And I don't yeah, know. Are you the bastard or something? Yeah. It's like being mean about Fitz or like, maybe he like blames Fitz in some way for his dad's actions. It's, um, it's the first time we see Fitz repelling somebody. Yes. With the wit. Um, and I think I think about it a lot because it was such a significant thing to Fitz because he like clearly remembered it enough to talk about it yeah yeah and 
So like whenever I'm going into things, I'm like, I bet this this stemmed from barrel guy in my head. (laughs) And so I just think about him all the time and I don't usually say it out loud. It's just something that I have. So like (laughs) I only ever think about him in the first trilogy. I will never think about him again. And you guys probably won't either. But just in case most of you were also confused. <laughs> That's who Barrel Guy is. <laughs> He's not very important. And I'm, I don't know why I didn't think to describe who he was because he is very, a very small character. <laughs> yes. Do we have anything else? I think that's it to go through right now. Yeah, I think that's mostly it. Um, besides just wanting to say thank you guys. Um, we read all the very nice emails and comments you guys send that aren't really like questions. And, um, it's really nice to see you guys like happy for us and excited to go on this journey. I think sometimes because this is a format where we're kind of talking to each other um, (laughs) and not really like to you guys in person, sometimes we forget that like you guys do exist and you are excited to hear us. It just is like something that we're really grateful for and that we really appreciate and it's really nice to hear. So thank you guys for all your warm wishes and excitement and kindness that you have thrown our way lately. And, and the support, um, as we had said before, we are in a new country here, so we're just kind of settling in, Yeah. uh, hopefully getting back to a normal routine and I don't know, just more normalcy would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to try to level things out. A little bit more. <laughs> yeah. So this is, we're recording part two of chapter one in an entirely different place than we recorded part one in. So <laughs> things, uh, things are definitely shifting rapidly. So we'll try to settle down here and, and get into a routine. Yeah. But thank you guys for um, being patient with us and also being interested in what we have to say. We always appreciate you guys and can't wait to hear the questions you have for us next week. 